session with Dr. Farid Holakou. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Hulakwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program, and the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on iTunes. Again, our studio number, 310-441-0555. I'll announce the book of the week. Again, I mentioned it Monday night. It is The Personality Brokers, The Strange History of Myers-Briggs and the Birth of Personality Testing by Merv Emery. Pretty sure I'm saying that name wrong. The last name is E-M-R-E. And I'm about 50 pages in. It's very interesting. It's looking at the history of how the Myers-Briggs type indicator, somebody's personality test, somebody's referred that way, was developed. And so right now it's still in the history of it, but it's an interesting story of a mother and daughter collaborating, Catherine and Isabel. Um, but I'm too early to see exactly how the test became what it is today because it's still in the infancy of it as I'm reading. But um, to see the influence of Jung on Catherine, the mother, is also interesting and there's a story there. So it's a lot about the behind the scenes in a way of what happened, not just about the personality test and the science of it. Maybe it'll get to that. Uh, but for now, it's still that part. But pretty interesting and the way she writes it, it keeps it engaging. So that's the personality brokers, the strange history of Myers-Briggs and the birth of personality testing by Merv Emery. I'll share that on Monday night's show. But I wanted to talk today to start off the show about um, some of the sayings that we can hear or become so common and really what they mean. And some of this was sparked by the book The Intelligence Trap that I talked about on Monday night. And there was something, I forgot exactly the term, but it also had the word BS in it, which I can't say on the air. But it was about when we sometimes think something is very profound. So it was like pseudo-profound or profound-sounding BS or something like that. Um, and you see a lot of this, especially online. People will post quotes or they'll post their own quotes or quote someone else. And often it can sound very profound. But when we look a little bit deeper, we see there's not a lot of meaning to it. And the one I wanted to talk about today is when people talk about uh, sunshine and rain or like, you know, if there was never darkness or rain. We wouldn't know what light feels like. And something about this never rang true. And actually, if I, I was reading quotes online and some of them to me didn't even make sense against like no sunshine without rain, which in a grand scheme makes sense, but doesn't really make sense. Or there can be no sunshine without a little rain. And I don't know how that works because when it's raining, there usually isn't sunshine or when it's sunshine. Again, if you look at all of weather ever, yes. And that's something I'll, I'll talk about. But to me, it never felt very true to say, well, if you're in pain, you have to go through pain so you know what pleasure feels like. There's a little bit of that. To me, it's actually more if we don't let ourselves 
feel pain. We won't actually let ourselves feel pleasure. So we don't need to have something bad happen to us or we shouldn't feel lucky something bad is happening to us so that we can enjoy the good because then that could be used in a way to make it okay to hurt people or for something unjust to happen and say, well, it's okay, they're going through something bad, but then they get to enjoy the good more, um, which there could be some truth to that, but not in a way of justifying that it's okay. To me, it's more about this idea of the sunshine and the rain. It's that we have to go outside. And when we go outside, you can sometimes have sunshine and sometimes there is rain. But it's not that we need the rain to have necessarily the sunshine, but that if we don't allow ourselves to experience things, which is in this analogy going outside and seeing the weather, then we don't get to enjoy anything or really be alive. And in this case, it's interesting because rather than going outside, really the feelings are within ourselves. If we don't let ourselves feel, we don't get to feel the good or the bad. I think Brené Brown in one of her TED Talks said something that I thought was interesting is that you can't numb just some feelings or you can't just numb the bad feelings. And I think that's very true. A lot of times people try to do this. They want to feel good and happy, and we definitely have a culture that's obsessed with happiness, especially in the West, and even more so, I think, in places like Los Angeles. Just everyone should be happy all the time, and we're blessed and grateful and always feeling good. And so people are obsessed with being happy. And so they don't want to feel sad, they don't want to feel bad, but they want to really feel happiness so strong. And you even feel something not so genuine in the way they express happiness. Or I'll see uh, even posts or things, either a hashtag or a picture of a quote, like no bad days, like every day should be good and happy, which to me is not realistic. It's not genuine to experience, to try to experience life in that way. There will be some bad days. That's part of life in whatever you're going through or whatever aspect of your life even you're talking about or overall, you might have some days that don't feel good and that's part of life. But again, if you're feeling things, you're going to have some of those experiences. So we can't numb just the bad feelings, even if we want to, because the bad feelings, a quote unquote bad, even I like to say, because they're not necessarily bad, isn't not good, isn't something negative, but they don't feel good in the moment. That's what we mean. Usually they're unpleasant, meaning something we don't like is going on or we're experiencing something or thinking about something that doesn't feel good. And we'd rather not feel that kind of feeling, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't let ourselves. And this analogy of numbing ourselves the analogy I use is that if you numb your arm, we put it anesthetic, you don't feel anything, you won't feel any pain. We can slap your arm, we can poke your arm, and they can even do surgery on your arm, and you won't feel anything. And that's, of course, good when they're trying to do surgery. But in general, if you numb your arm, not only can you not feel pain, but if your loved one touches you, you won't feel anything. You won't feel a comfort. Or if someone gives you a massage, it won't feel good either. You won't be able to feel anything at all. And so we have to embrace that by letting ourselves feel, we're going to feel good sometimes and we're going to feel bad sometimes. There's going to be both. But in order to live life, we have to be open to having both. So it's not about we force only good feelings, or we force only bad feelings, or we have to sometimes force bad feelings to come along in order to realize how good good feelings are. But that when we open ourselves up to experience, there's no guarantee of what we will experience, but then we can feel actually alive. And so if you numb your arm, in a way it's basically dead. It doesn't feel 
anything. You don't feel that aliveness. But if it's not numb, you can feel some pain, but you can feel pleasure. You can feel all sorts of things. And that's what we experience in life. But when we have an expectation of feeling a certain way, then we don't get to actually experience life. So we see this uh, parents with their kids. They want their kids to always be happy and they want every experience to be good. Or couples, they want to feel good in every experience. We think we shouldn't be feeling the bad. And so it's not just that we need to feel the bad in order to feel the good, but the relationship we have with the bad is very important. And this is something I see all the time and why I say one of the biggest markers to me of mental health is our frustration tolerance or distress tolerance or our tolerance for the quote-unquote negative feelings. This doesn't mean that we want them. It doesn't mean that we seek them out. Some people do that. But when I talk about the tolerance for the painful feelings, it means that we can accept that at times we don't feel good because that's part of life. Whatever you want to do, sometimes you're not going to feel very good. Whether you want to pursue your dream job, even when you have your dream job, there's going to be parts of it you don't like. Or just in your day-to-day, you're going to experience sometimes feelings that don't feel good. The problem is, and people will say, well, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with wanting to feel good? In a way, it's not bad. Everyone likes to feel good. But the problem is when we look at feeling bad as something so negative, what we end up doing is, one, we ignore the feelings as much as we can, deny the feelings. We don't feel what's there, which means that we're not paying attention to a lot of information that our brain and body is telling us. If you don't recognize you're in physical pain because you say, I always want to feel good, you might not realize that you're very sick or injured or hurt. Your body is telling you something. Similarly with your feelings, they're telling you something too. If you are interacting at work and you don't feel very good, or if you're interacting with a loved one, a family member, friend, and you don't feel very good, but you don't want to feel that because it is better to feel good than bad, you might miss that you're actually very unhappy or being hurt in that relationship or interaction. You have to pay attention to those feelings in order to actually know what you are experiencing, to actually have an interaction. But if you just want to say everything is good, everything is great, everything's perfect all the time, you won't get those messages of what you're actually feeling and experiencing. And the other problem is when we don't want to feel them, if we are able to deny them for long enough, we try that. But then once we can't deny them anymore, we end up trying to get away from those feelings as quickly as possible. And this makes people turn towards unhealthy ways of dealing with the feelings. If we don't allow ourselves to be bad or feel bad, I should say, we try to get rid of it with drugs, alcohol, food, starting maybe even a relationship or whatever it might be to just get away from the feeling because we think that feeling is intolerable. So it's not just about we need the rain to then enjoy the sunshine or to realize there's sunshine or even have sunshine, but we want to even change our relationship to the rain. We might think it's unpleasant. We might not like those feelings, but we have to actually recognize there's not something we have to run away from. You can even enjoy being in the rain or going for a walk in the rain around a lake and just enjoy the view and take your time to think about things. There's nothing necessarily bad about that. It doesn't have to be bad. But it's the problem when we think that the bad feelings are so painful and horrible and the indication of something horrible that we end up doing things that aren't helpful and we get more either disconnected 
or make decisions that push us in wrong or bad directions. So this for me is a big part of what I try to talk to parents about, especially working with their kids, that first you have to recognize your own relationship with the negative feelings. Because if you feel that sadness is such a horrible thing or anger is such a horrible thing or anxiety is such a horrible thing that we should never feel it, um, that it's intolerable or bad, if you have that feeling, then you won't allow your kids to have those feelings either and you'll pass that along to them. And so most people in most homes, they grew up with a family that didn't do well with the negative feelings, either all of them or some of them. So sadness was something we were never supposed to feel, or if you felt it, it was something bad, or if you were sad, everyone else had to be miserable too. So you learned that it's this really horrible thing that hurts other people. Um, and so you decided to hide it, or people got mad at you for getting sad or told you it was weak, or boys don't cry, or whatever it was. So we do very poorly with sadness. And maybe even in more homes, anger I'd say is an emotion that is not dealt with well. In most families that I observe, they either hold anger in completely or they explode. Or in the same family, you might have both where it's held in, held in, held in, and so you can't hold it in and then you explode. And so children don't get a model of healthy expression of anger. And so we don't learn how to express the anger very well. And a lot of times the kids really have no choice. They're raised in a home where they're not allowed to be angry. They might be getting hurt a lot, but they're not taught that it's okay to be angry. It's understandable to be angry because the parents can't tolerate it. And so we pass this along to our kids. And so if you're a parent, I hope you'll recognize that and realize, as I always say, your job isn't to make your kids happy in the sense that they're supposed to be smiling and giggling and happy every moment. Of course, we want to give them a good life, take away the unnecessary pains that are damaging them, make them feel good in lots of ways. But we shouldn't think that if they're not smiling, we're a bad parent. And if they're smiling, I have to be a good parent. Because if we're not allowing them to feel their feelings, that's not good. Or a lot of times parents want their kid to be happy all the time, not realizing that by not giving them the space to be sad, that's actually hurting them. But they think, oh, look, my kid is smiling. So that's good. My kid is happy. But do you know that they maybe don't have some feelings they're afraid to show you because they think you won't like it? That is actually a big concern. So it's not that we see our kids smiling and we should think for sure they're so sad and they're faking it, but to have that openness to see that there could be more going on. We have a big tendency to want to say everything is okay. Oh, no, they're okay. They said they were sad. but Or they said that teacher was so mean, but maybe it's not a big deal. Let's just wait. You always want to show them that their feelings are important and that they could have bad feelings too. doesn't mean there have to be some bad feelings that we don't know. But we should ask ourselves, is it as easy for my child to tell me they are sad as it is for them to tell me they're happy? Do they have that openness to say, I had a bad day and I had a good day in the same way? And we might think, yes, I tell my kids, tell me everything. But you might not realize the ways you're responding to what they tell you. That when they say it was a bad day, you go into panic mode or get upset or you try to convince them that it was a good day or whatever you might do. And... They might get this message that I should say it's a, a good day. So we should, as parents, think about this. Can my child tell me that they're feeling anything and I make them feel okay? Or do I make it very clear that some feelings are okay and some are not? And even then with ourselves, that same thing. Yeah, there's going to be some rainy days and some sunny days, and maybe the sunny ones might feel a little bit better in the moment, but we shouldn't run away or shy away from the rainy ones or think 
that that's something that means life is bad. We need to go outside and experience life. And in that way, go inside and experience our feelings and our inner life as well. Let's go to a commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hello. Yes, hi. Thanks for calling. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. My pleasure. Um, I have a question about my uh, 14-year-old son Mm -hmm. uh, in high school. Um, Basically, the question is how much should we as parents um, push them, uh, push him to, you know, study or, um, uh, you know, tell him about the unknowns that we later experience, you know, in college and whatnot. We don't want them to make the mistake and, and, uh, um, so for example, he's, he's been, you know, a straight A student, but, uh, once entering high school, which is actually like a magnet or a gifted, uh, high school. Mm-hmm. So he never really learned to study. Uh, he always just, you know, whatever he listened to in class and he took exams and, and was the straightest student from, you know, basically kindergarten through, um, just before high school. And, uh, and so now things are hard. They're taking, you know, AP courses, et cetera. And, um, you know, I see him playing sometimes on his phone, you know, playing games, or I, you know, I'll go get, for example, biology, you know, AP books or, you know, videos or other teaching methods and say, oh, you know, well, uh, maybe this can help you. And mm-hmm. he absolutely refuses. <laughs> um, so how, you know, and, and sometimes his dad and I just say, well, uh, let's just let him you know, experience high school and see how he does if he doesn't, you know, he, like on weekends, he really, I mean, he says he studies, but, you know, two hours of sitting behind the desk, you know, he gets up every five minutes, mm-hmm. um, you know, goes and rides his bike or does something else or plays a game, et cetera. And then he's all, oh, I studied all weekend. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, so, you know, there's an easy answer to your question, how much you you should push him, and that's just enough, but I know that's that's kind of obviously a joke, because what that means is obviously not going to be clear. Um, one thing that came to my mind as you were talking, especially when you said he went to uh, a magnet school now, and it's also high school, and it's going to be more challenging, and before he didn't have to really study much, how familiar are you with the growth mindset versus a fixed mindset? I'm not. Okay, so there's a you know you could, there's a book by Carol Dweck and she's done this research on growth mindset versus fixed mindset. So the fixed mindset is the idea that, for example, when it comes to intelligence or doing well in school, either you have it or you don't. And some kids are geniuses and they're just going to get everything easily, and some kids won't. And so the unfortunate part is when you have this mindset, you feel that if you take a test, either you should do well on it. Or if there's a new concept, either you're going to get it or you won't get it. That's the fixed mindset. The growth mindset is the mentality that you have to work hard to do well. That if something is challenging, that's okay. You have to just try harder and then you'll get it. Whereas for the fixed mindset, if you don't get something and you have to try hard, that means it's proving you're stupid or not good enough. And so a lot of times students who do really well from a young age, they're told they're smart. And especially if they don't have to try very hard, they get this a mindset that, okay, I'm just smart and that's all that matters. And then when they face a challenge and they've even done research on this, they don't want to face the challenge or they get a lot of anxiety. So even if they want to study 
and the stuff is kind of hard, like, oh, this is kind of scary, and they'd rather not even face it because each time they face it, it's an indication of how not smart I am or not good enough I am. When that's not actually the case, it just means you're going to have to try hard and study hard. So there could be some of that that your son has internalized as far as when it comes to working hard, that if he's smart enough, he shouldn't have to work hard. And now that he might need to, it's an indication he's not smart enough, even though that's not really the case. I, I think you I probably hit the nail on the head. Um, unfortunately, uh, while he was growing up, uh, other than being an only child, um, I, I think I've done all the wrong things that you're um, probably mentioned <laughs> doing. I put him in daycare. Like before, you know, twenty four months. Um, anyway, on and on and well, on. Well, that and I yet, wouldn't. I'm not gonna. We, we don't want to. We're not gonna list like all the things. And I'm sure you've done so many things right. Um, and this one, you know, what's interesting about this one is that the growth mindset, fixed mindset. Unfortunately, a lot of people go through life and their parents told them they're stupid and they're dumb and all these negative things. And so we think the opposite of that is good to just always praise our kids. You're a genius. You're a genius. You're and smart. That's what we did wrong. Yeah, and it's not necessarily bad. It sounds great, but it does create some of this. Um, Again, it gears towards this fixed mindset, and it puts a lot of pressure that the next test I take, what if it proves I'm not smart? Because this one, I proved I am smart. And so we even encourage parents, rather than saying, you got an A, you're so smart, we say, you got an A, you must have worked so hard, or you studied hard to get the material to understand it to get that A, which reinforces the idea that it's about hard work, not just talent. And so I'm very much of the... A mindset that talent is actually very overrated or innate talent like you just have to either have it or you don't it's much more about the hard work but the problem is once that gets ingrained it creates all these challenges because when you are faced with the difficulty it's not a fun thing like oh this is challenging let's figure it out it's oh this means i'm not that smart this means i'm not good enough and all this fear and anxiety that comes with it yes and i do see him uh to tackle, for example, homework or to tackle something, it takes, you know, time for him. He has to do other things and just mm-hmm. kind of ready his mind to tackle. But once he tackles his homework or studies for a test, um, you know, he does okay. But I, I, I think you're right, unfortunately. Anyway, so what's been done, I, I learned late, um, you know, rather than saying that's great, you didn't got an A from your hard work. And, and um, is there anything at this point, mm-hmm. you know, water under the bridge that I can – you know, my, my husband and I can do to set, I mean, you just said that it's ingrained. Does that mean, does that mean that he's... In, ingrained may be a strong word as in, I don't mean it can't change ever, but it, it'll be hard to change. You know, it can get pretty set, but uh, people do even this work, like, you, you know, I don't want to say it's the only issue around everything, but you can look up Carol Dweck's work and other people have worked on it on this, the growth versus fixed mindset. And there is, um, of course, the younger you start, the better, but It's not that even it's funny. It's like that's not totally fixed either. There's a growth mindset when it comes to our mindsets even. So it can change. It can be it's tough and takes some time and we have to realize it's hard. So by ingrained, I meant it's there's going to be some deeper things that will. It's not just a new study habit. It's going to be a little bit harder to change, but we can. Um, And as far as, you know, going back to your initial question of how much to push him. At the end of the day, we know that he's going to have to be motivated himself. And so you guys, you know, if you try to, it's like if you're trying to push him to get to the car, you maybe can get him there, but it's going to be really hard and you probably won't get there. But if we can get him to want to walk to the car, well, then he can get there, you know? So we have to think of ways of seeing what's going on for him. And so rather than focusing on specific, let's say, studying techniques or new videos, 
I would see if you can connect with him to see how he's doing. Like, how how is he feeling? Does he have an anxiety of maybe high school and honors and AP classes is going to be too hard for me? Maybe I'm not smart enough. These things that might be going on. I would want to get to the deeper part rather than just the techniques and things of, and you're right, you know, he needs to just study more, but there's no way for you to make him study more. And even we can put him in his room and he might just stay distracted and not get the work done. So for me, it's always more about getting in touch with what's, what's going on. Like, what is he experiencing? Um, and, and one thing I always recommend to parents, I know you said something about, we don't want him to go through what we went through or challenges we faced or things we learned. And, and it's funny because I've just, I've been talking for a few minutes straight, but when you're talking to him, it's making sure it's not too lengthy of, you know, parents a lot of times think I have to give the perfect pep talk or lecture to my kid to get them to do X, Y, or Z. But usually the kid's checking out if you go into a lecture. So it's more about making sure he's talking actually even more than you guys. If we want to know about what's going on for him, you know? I see. I see. Um, if in talking with him and keeping it short and, um, you know, asking what's, what's, you know, why do you think, for example, you, you know, you're making a C, getting C's or B's, or why are you not <laughs> doing homework, etc. Um, if the answers are those that you mentioned, such as, um, uh, aside from anxiety, aside from, you know, something yeah. like, well, I'm not smart enough, or I, I don't know why I'm even in AP, or I can't do this, then, mm-hmm. uh, then how does a parent go from yeah. Well, it's tough. I mean, I, well, I mean, I I am also a a therapist, so I'm always in favor of therapy. I don't see it as some, um, negative thing. I think it'd be helpful if the, whoever it is, whether it's adult or teenager has to want it and, and feel okay. And for me, the slight distinction of showing you deserve therapy versus you need therapy. Cause when you say you need therapy, people can feel very judged at times that you're saying you're, you know, you're crazy or weak or you need it. But deserve means I see some pain and suffering that deserves some help. You, you don't, you deserve to feel better than what you're feeling. Um, but that is possible. So I'd be open to that if he is, and it depends on how he responds to that. But if he responds in that way, it's, you know, we don't want to just try to convince him first you always want to empathize i can see how it's been challenging and school has been hard but really what i believe is that probably what's happening is that he he's a smart kid and so he didn't always have to work so hard but now he's at a point where the school stuff just is more challenging not because he's not smart enough but because that's how things get like it's just harder and it takes more work to learn these types of things, even if you're like really smart, which again, we don't want to emphasize too much, but even if you are, you still need to study these things and it takes time. And so maybe it's like realizing, yeah, you know, it's interesting. You used to not have to study and you do pretty well. And now you're also in high school and that's a different uh, demand as far as what you have to do. So maybe just class is not going to be enough. And it just means you have to study more on your own. And that's something new for you to figure out how to do that. And even we can help you with that process of figuring out what works for you, but this doesn't mean you're not good enough. You know, anyone who, whatever career he wants to go into, they've worked really hard to get there. You know, someone's a medical doctor. They didn't just get lucky and were smart. They studied hours and hours and hours to get there, no matter whatever their IQ was. And I actually read a book that I talked about Monday night, and it was talking about IQ in some ways and how, to me, IQ is very overrated. We think it's what's going to make someone successful, but really it's not. It's really much more about hard work. So it's getting to see that maybe, and you can even talk about how we bought into that too. And we tell you 
how smart you are and we think you are smart, but maybe that didn't emphasize how important it is to work hard no matter how much brain power you have. Without the work, it's not going to get you very far, you know? So it, it could take, it's going to be a process because he might be so set in that way, but we don't know. We have to ask him. Um, and we can understand also and empathize like how scary it must be to feel like you're so smart, you're good enough. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, you're not smart. And then what, what choice do you have? You feel like you have to just give up because you're not smart enough to do well anymore. And so that maybe is where he's at. So he might be going through a lot internally if he's used to getting A's and now he's getting C's. We have to keep in mind, sometimes parents think, oh, like I have to push him because C's are not acceptable. But probably for him, C's are not acceptable either. And so first we have to see how he's feeling about his grades rather than just think we have to make him get A's again, you know? Yeah, no, we've told him that, um, you know, straight A's isn't our goal. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, you know, we, we want you to be happy. We want you to enjoy what you're studying. At the same time, the, my question uh, or my comments about we don't want our kids to fall in the same traps or, you know, go down the rocky road that we did. No, I, I understand that we need to let them fall and mm -hmm. get back up, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. feel, you know, emotions like you were talking about. But, um, but, but I, in other words, I, I don't want to you know, a few years down the road, you know, he turned around and say, well, God, you know, you guys never told me that if I, I don't know, if I didn't do this and this and this, then I, you know, I, I don't know. Yeah. So at what point do we just, let's say I, we have this talk with him and we, we figure out what's, um, what's, you know, what the cause is or the root of why he's saying the things he does or, or um, getting uh, lower grades, which, yes, for him is incompatible with, I mean, if he doesn't get A's, he's unhappy with himself. He's very mm. hard on himself. Let's say we do all that, and um, and he doesn't want to go to therapy. Um, uh, so okay, so basically, I should just look into um, Ms. Dweck's uh, book and see what other means there is for. Yeah, I mean that could be a starting point. Uh, you know, like I said, I don't want to to feel like that's going to be the solution to everything. Um, it could be one aspect of it. You know, and you could even tell him like sometimes I want to make sure I'm supporting you as much as I can. Uh, but I, do, I rarely do kids say my parents should have given me more lectures on like how to study or something, you know, but right. he might want, he might say, yeah, you're right, mom. I don't, I'm not, I don't know. You know, a lot of times kids don't know how to study because like they never had to. And it's a very different type of mindset that goes into studying, like reviewing stuff and getting into it and then practicing. And there's all sorts of stuff about studying and how actually when we study, we do better when it's a little bit difficult while we're studying. It helps us remember better. There's um, something called desirable difficulties. Not to Now I feel like I'm giving you homework, but that's another thing you can look up when it comes to ways that we actually can benefit in our studying. But, um, you know, he, he probably will need some support, but it's realizing that your job is to be support, not to make the plan for him. You know, so I would talk with him and, and, and always I ask parents, even if it's like a five-year-old and they had a fight with a kid at school, we really want to make sure we start with after we empathize, well, what do you want to do or what do you think you can do about it? You know, so he comes up with stuff and you can work with him and you can have a conversation with him, but make sure he's coming up with it because at the end of the day, he has to want to do whatever it is himself. And it also gives him an opportunity to practice problem solving and figuring things out and seeing what works for him. But, you know, it seems like he's at a bit of a crossroads and a lot of kids can feel this when they go to high school and it gets more challenging. I also see this a lot with kids who are very successful in their high school 
and they're top of the class and they get all this attention. Then they go to like a, a college or a university where everyone was kind of the top of their class and all of a sudden they don't feel that smart and they can feel another one of these breakdowns of like, oh, maybe I'm just not good enough because everyone seems smart or smarter than me or I thought it was going to be enough just to be as smart as I am. And, and that could be tough too. So he's kind of at a crossroads, it seems like, and and we want to just help him figure this out. And also it, it's part of this whole mindset that okay you're facing a challenge that's just a challenge you know there's bumps in the road and i know you said we we let him fail and that that's good we really want to make sure he feels that that this doesn't mean he can't be successful academically and in his career but for a lot of kids if they've always done well they're not used to these even if you say you let him fail maybe he never really did you know he never had these kinds of challenges and so it could help him grow but we want to help he help him internalize this more as growth rather than an indication of how weak or not good enough he is and and that's a little bit more delicate than i can tell you exactly tell him this but it's about having those types of conversations and to me focusing less on making sure we teach him all the best studying habits it could come to that later on but first getting in touch with what he's feeling and going through at an emotional level as if his grades don't even matter. They matter because he cares about it, but not making that our goal of, well, now he's getting B's, so it's good, or now he's getting A's, so everything's fine. It's more about connecting with him on the emotional level rather than managing his academics. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Well, I really appreciate your help. Oh, thank you. It was nice talking to you. Good luck to you. It's it's, it's not easy, and, and, you know, we want to help our kids, and then always we want to help them because help themselves because at the end, the end of the day, that's what's going to carry them the rest of the way. But thanks for your call. Thank you so much. Have thank a good day. Bye bye. All right, going into another commercial break. Studio number three one zero four four one zero five five five. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Uh, studio number three one zero four four one zero five five five. Wanted to do a little. Um, follow-up and uh, about the caller we just got off the phone with and it won't be directly related to her because she's not on to to respond and have the conversation but it is something that comes up a lot with parents uh, that the question she brought up or what even initially how much do we push our kids um, to and usually about school and so I work with a lot of families and I see that very often parents and some usually it's more often the moms and the dads because they can just be more involved with the kids' lives and especially their school lives, but it doesn't have to be, feel like their role is to be a school manager, that their most important job is to make sure homework is done and projects are done and that grades are good. And interestingly, it's almost like we look at our kids' grades as a grade on our parenting. If my kids are getting A's, then I'm an A parent. If my kid is getting D's, I'm a D parent. And that's really bad and something hard for us to internalize. So there's that aspect where we feel like it's a reflection of how good of a parent we are. And so we can we can be so tied into their grades um, for that reason. And then also, we all went to school ourselves. And so we have relationship to grades. I remember myself now looking back at my high school and and college, and even I can relate to some of maybe what that uh, child was going through, that I was used to school being kind of easy for me. So I think when it got harder, it was hard for me to accept that, or I thought that was something bad going on. But I remember being very focused, or even focused might be too weak of a word, probably obsessed with grades. 
wanting to get A's. And I think if I were just to take a class now or if I wrote an essay and someone gave me an A on the paper, I'd feel better. And if I saw C, I'd probably have a reaction to that. So we have to remember as parents, we have our own relationship to grades and responses. So when we see our child's grades, it's going to bring up stuff for us that we want to think about. How was I as a student? What do I remember my parents telling me about grades and and how I was as a student? And also, what do I still feel myself or what did I feel about grades myself? Because that's going to impact how you look at your child's grades. But one thing that I always tell parents to do, and it's easier said than done, is you have to be able to keep a mindfulness in the moment with your child while also maintaining a bigger picture view. So what does this mean? It means that the mindfulness side is, of course, when you're interacting with your child, if they're sad about something, you make them feel like you care about it and it's important. Because sometimes parents, they only come from the bigger picture view. Oh, my six-year-old got in a fight with their friend from school, but I said, oh, when you're 18, you won't even know this six-year-old kid, so who cares? You get over it. It's not a big deal or you won't even know them anymore or whatever. And so we completely dismiss the problem in the moment by thinking it's because we're taking a bigger picture of you, but really it's that we're trying to just minimize or avoid the pain, something I alluded to in the first segment, not really that we're being rational about it as we might feel we're being in that moment. It's that we're just avoiding it. So you have to be mindful that whatever your child is going through, yeah, they get a bad grade when they're in sixth, uh, you know, a six-year-old on their spelling test, we want to care, even though we know this is not going to determine their future in any way, but we have to show we care. We don't have to make it so big of a deal and scare them even more, but we don't want to avoid how they're feeling. But then we also have to have the bigger picture view. And this actually comes into play more when parents get too tied up in the grades or the homework assignments, um, that we get so caught up in like each assignment being done or each grade in the moment that we forget the bigger picture. So this is the case when a parent says things to me like, oh, you know, I help her with her homework every day. And I'm like, well, why don't you let her do it herself? And they say, well, if, oh, you don't know. If I didn't do it, it would never get done. And so here we see the emphasis is too much on the homework being completed in the daughter's backpack and being turned in the next day. That assignment gets too much weight, missing the bigger picture of what am I teaching my child or what am I taking away from my child? by not letting them have the experience of not getting the work done and facing some consequences that they then realize, oh, if you don't do the work, something negative does happen if I don't do it. Unfortunately, when we do the work for them, we're just reinforcing that even when you don't do the work, somehow it works out okay. You don't actually feel any pain or sacrifice or a consequence, and so it's all right. So it actually takes away a lesson from them. We're trying to teach them the lesson of whatever they're learning and homework, although even we take that away by doing it for them. But we're actually taking away a bigger lesson about life. And so that's why we have to have the the moment-to-moment -moment mindfulness while also having the bigger picture that we don't get so caught up in the grades getting uh, being always perfect or the homework assignment being done or our child not feeling the pain of going to school with un you know, incomplete work, and we show them that it's, that's part of life and that's something they're going to go through. So we don't just get so focused on that moment. And it came up with, with the previous caller to not have this mindset that my job as a parent is an academic manager, which is what I see a lot of parents doing. Okay, the homework is done and it's, you know, that's it and they're going to school tomorrow, so I'm, I'm a good parent today. But sometimes we miss, like, what is our child feeling? What are they going through? What are they feeling about themselves? What lessons are they learning about hard work 
or about challenges or about whatever else is going on. And we have to have that bigger picture view as well. And then also the bigger picture, you know, the, the, what seemed to be the reason for the call was about pushing our kids, which is so important. But we know that motivation has to come from within. Much easier said than done, but something we have to keep in mind, that if we keep pushing them, even with prizes, sometimes it's good to have rewards for things, of course. But sometimes if we reward everything, then there's no reason, there's no intrinsic motivation. It's like, okay, just studying to get that prize or to get that new toy or to get money or whatever we promise our kids. It can serve as a good push. We don't want to lose sight again that it's not just about getting that A. It's about instilling in them the idea that hard work is a good thing for themselves, not for someone else or not just to get the reward, but it feels good to learn and to try our best and to study something and understand it, to actually instill in them curiosity that it's fun to learn things. And also, yeah, it's challenging. And even the challenge is not something bad. So that growth mindset that, yeah, it's so interesting. You know, it was hard for you and then you studied it and now you get it. That's how things are. Just like, you know, sometimes I like musical instruments for that reason because a child sees that at first they couldn't do something and then they keep working on it and now they can do something. It's not just that you sit down at the piano and you can play every piece. You have to work hard to build up those skills. And so it's emphasizing those aspects of things, not being so focused on, did my kid get an A? Okay, things are good. They got a C? Oh, that's bad. Sometimes a kid is getting an A, but they're so stressed out and feel so much pressure to get that A that we're missing the bigger picture that they're actually not okay. They're getting an A on the test, but emotionally they're at an F and we're missing that because we're just focused on if my kid is getting A's, I'm a good parent and they're good. If they're getting bad grades, I'm bad and something is bad or wrong with them. And that's all we focus on. So we have to take that mindset, bigger picture, and realize that motivation means we have to get them to want it. Why do they want to study and get a good grade? Just because youth say grades are good or just because, you know, they're uh, supposed to impress other people? Or is there something about it for them? You know, getting them motivated about what do they want to be when they grow up? Of course, as a kid, they might say a million things over the course of their life and it changes and that's fine but getting them excited that yeah whatever you want to be we work hard to become that and to be good at it and as i mentioned with her not just saying you're smart so you're going to be a doctor or a lawyer or this like you're going to work yeah you're going to learn about things to become a doctor or you're going to learn about the laws and understand them and that's so fun so it's emphasizing the work part making them see that that can actually be enjoyable doesn't mean every moment will feel fun but it'll be enjoyable to learn new things and then realize that they have to keep that motivation and keep it going. You can't be the one to motivate them. Like the analogy I used with her, if you want to get your grown-up kid to the car, you could try to carry them or push them or roll them, but they're going to get hurt and you're probably going to get hurt in the process. What's obviously much better is to see if we can get them to want to get to the car themselves, and then it becomes quite easy. So your job isn't to be their motivation. You can help them at times get motivated or find it within themselves because everyone loses motivation sometimes. So there's not that I'm saying get your kids motivated and then you don't have to do anything or ever worry about them losing it. Even ourselves, we can lose motivation at times, but it's recognizing that we want to make sure it's coming from within them. If you're trying so hard for their homework to get done, if you're trying harder than they are for their homework to get done, that's a big problem. But for a lot of parents, because the only goal is so fixated in that moment of getting that day's homework done, 
we focus too much on that. And we're working harder than them if we have to, because if the homework is done, I'm good. If their homework is not done, I'm a bad parent. We might even not realize how affected we are by the teacher looking at the homework and thinking, oh, our kid's mom or dad is not good. We might still be afraid of that evaluation from the teacher and even that we're judging ourselves based on their grades. And your job isn't about having a good grade in the moment, but teaching your child good skills about a life, not that moment, but the bigger picture. So it's a challenge that we always have as parents when it comes to anything, uh, even emotional things, realizing we don't, we want to stay in the moment, be mindful, be connected, show empathy, show that we care, but also we have the bigger picture in mind as well. All right, let's go to another commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's go to another caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hello. Yes, hi. Thanks for calling. Hi, how are you? Good, thank you. you hear me, doctor? Yes, I can. It's a little bit quiet, but it, if you can speak a little louder, that'll help, but it's okay. Let me let me turn my position. Let me turn my position louder so you can hear. Okay. Uh, I have an issue. Okay. I have a friend of mine. She's around seventy years old, and I think that she's sex addicted. Mm-hmm. She has sex addiction, but she denies. So, okay. uh, I want you to tell me what are the symptoms or the syndrome or whatever you know better than well, you're expert on that. Well, yeah, I mean, when it, it seems like you're trying to convince him to get help or that he has a problem, right? Uh-huh. And so... The, the thing with something like this, and addiction especially in general, and sometimes people, there's even debate about sex addiction, if it's real or not even in a way. I think it's definitely a real thing in the sense that just like other addictions, it's not about sex itself, but it's that they're using sex for something to deal with their emotions or deal with some underlying stress, anxiety, or itself it has they have a relationship with stress just like someone could have a relationship with food or a relationship with something else but at the end of the day if someone doesn't recognize a problem they're not going to want to get help even if you show him let's say a set of six symptoms that he has that are an indication that it's an addiction he still won't accept it so uh, rather than trying to prove to him that does he himself ever say that his sex gets him into trouble or has any issues for him? Because that's a big part of any addiction is that it has to cause some dysfunction in the person's life. What do you see that it causes dysfunction? What's the question? Like how does his, what you're calling a sex addiction, cause dysfunction or hurt him in his life? Okay, she is a she. And she is a, she, okay. she has a boyfriend, but beside the boyfriend, she... Uh, have sex with 10 more people mm-hmm. during the week and month. And she thinks it's okay. So what is she... That. Yeah, she says it's okay, it's just sex or something like that? Yeah, yeah. She, okay. says, <laughs> she has a funny word for it. She says, I'm socializing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. 
It's a, that is an interesting word for it. Um, but so she sees it as just something okay, and to yeah. you, you're saying it's not okay. No, it's not okay because, first of all, it affects the relationship that guy is not happy. Does the guy they know? Arguments about it. Yeah. Okay. And the second thing is that her health is in danger because, you know, eight, seven years old, she's seven years old, and I think too much sex or what kind of sex younger people they do, I think it's not appropriate. So I think it affects her uh, health uh, issues. Well, has she said that herself? Pardon me? Has she said that herself about the health issues? Yeah, yeah, she has. She has constantly. She has health issues, and she uses a strong medicine for her pain. She has surgery, and lately she had some other problems. Two weeks from now, she got hernia. Every time something breaks down, and you know, I'm worried. And he's a white friend. Yeah, worried about that too. So you know. As I was saying, maybe rather than trying to convince her that she meets the criteria for a disorder or addiction, which it seems like she she does because it's, it's causing her this dysfunction. And part of usually when we look at addiction, we're talking about a behavior that the person has a hard time stopping, even if there are negative consequences. But again, it has to feel like it's enough for them. Um, I would try to connect with her at her pain or where you see it's hurting her or when she gets hurt. Because if we try to convince someone they're hurting, they get defensive. Or if we convince them they have a problem, they get defensive. But if they share, you know, it's having these negative effects or I'm feeling sad or my boyfriend was so upset and I don't know what to do, um, then that that's, that's something. But at the end of the day, we can't convince someone to feel anything. They have to either accept it or not. And we have to accept that we're limited in how much we can do. But it seems like she, if what you're describing is accurate, she might be in denial of what's going on. She might not yeah, want to really accept it. Yeah, she's in denial. And then one thing is that she mentioned that that makes her happy or makes her life a happy life. Which, uh, we don't see, I mean, we don't look at it that way because she's kind of miserable. She's not happy because she has constantly pain. Yeah. She takes a strong... Doctors give give her a strong medication to control the pain. You know. Yeah, and so does she say her boyfriend shouldn't make it a big deal or he shouldn't care? What What's her reaction to his not liking it? Reaction to what? What does he know? You saying her boyfriend knows that she's with other people? Yes, yes. He he doc constantly uh, discusses with her that she should stop doing that. But she kind of believes on like open marriage or open relationship, and or some other times she says that this makes me this is pleasure for me. I think she does that somehow to forget the pain. She thinks mm-hmm. that helps her to forget the pain, you know, because she constantly has pain. She is uh, pushing a walker, so uh, cannot walk, mm. uh, and. Um, but uh, she doesn't have smoke, fortunately. Mm-hmm. But that's the only thing that she is doing. And I talked to her uh, because I had time for mention this to your father and you. So uh, she had bad childhood. Her mother was drinking a lot. She wasn't happy with her mother or mother action. 
and uh, a lot of other issues. She had marriages that wasn't she wasn't happy with it, so she got divorced. And she had a good job during her life, but I don't think none of those make sense. And then constantly she had, and she she says she says herself. I asked her, "What age did you start?" She says, "After 60, I think I thought that uh, I, you know, it's okay to do it, and then uh, she's doing it." Uh, she says that she didn't do it before 60, mm. but uh, sometimes she talks to me or you know talks about that that she had relationship, but not as much as. Like when she was with one of the husbands, she had a couple of months relationship and she stopped it somehow. Mm-hmm. But then she believes that after 60, now she's very okay and, and she's keep doing it. You know, so there could be something obviously from before, you're saying before 60, but sometimes people can have this kind of a reaction to aging. I mean, not this exactly this, but it could be something about aging of wanting to be young and wanting to be active or attractive in this way that she has to keep proving it that way. But what you mentioned about her having a rough childhood and having pain and escaping it, that's what I was saying before about addiction a big part of it in general is that we can look at the thing, you know, whether it's heroin or gambling or sex and focus on the thing. But what we're usually looking at is underneath that there's something going on. There's a pain, there is stress, there's anxiety, there's different feelings of maybe not feeling good enough, not being loved, whatever it might be. And they're using whatever the thing is to escape from that feeling, something that I talked about earlier on today's show too. So they can't tolerate the feelings and they're trying to get away from it. And sex probably serves that function for her. And maybe it could be related to the aging part. It could be related to relationship with men or feeling attracted. There could be um, sexual abuse that happened at some point in her life can contribute to things like this. It doesn't have to be, but there could be a lot going on. And I could see how for you, it's hard to see her acting in a way that is hurting herself or that she seems very unaware of it. But you have to be aware that there's only so much you can do to just break her denial and not put all that pressure on yourself. And to me, sometimes like an intervention can work, a very strict way of getting a lot of people together and forcing her to try to see the truth. That's a possibility. But especially on a one-on-one basis, I feel like it's better to try to connect with the pain to see if they see anything rather than trying to force them to see something, start with what they already see as a problem and see if you can help them look at that. But Dr. Salim, yes, she's well known in the society. Okay. A lot of people know her because of her past job. Okay. But what, uh, what happened is that first of, all, first of all, she doesn't talk to anybody else. I mean, whatever, whatever women and men around her that they know her, she tell, doesn't tell anybody about that. She's kind of hiding in the secret. Number two, sometimes she said that she imagines she kind of like rock sex, and she imagines that she's being raped or she's somebody raping her. Mm-hmm. But I asked her, are you actually being raped when you were younger, child, you know, older, whatever? She says no, mm-hmm. but she says that's my imagination that I think or I feel that somebody is raping. So 
what I was thinking, because I saw some movies, I thinking that she likes uh, kind of hard or rough sex to forget the pain, man. Because that pain is not tolerable now. Mm-hmm. It's very severe. And that's what she was doing. And, but then she justified, you know, she justified and she says that, okay, it's socializing or, you know, having fun or that makes me happy. It makes me my life better, you know. But I talked to her. Mm-hmm. I suggested that she see, uh, 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 as your father suggests usually, a woman therapist, you know, for a couple child. And she's agreed to that. Okay. But haven't, I mean, didn't happen yet. Well, I mean, that's a good first step. You know, we and and we could try to figure her out or analyze her, especially without talking to her. You know, that's going to be very difficult. And we don't know people, the pain and pleasure association, sometimes it's from something in the past, sometimes in the brain. There is a connection between pain and pleasure. Is it representing something, whether she went through sexual abuse or just being hurt by people in general? It, it's hard to say exactly what's going on and i wouldn't try to figure it out as far as thinking your job is to analyze her and to act as a therapist to figure it out for her i think suggesting that she talked to someone is good and she was open to that although maybe it hasn't happened yet but i i wouldn't put too much pressure on yourself that you're trying to convince her of something because that's gonna probably just drive you crazy trying to get her to see something that seems so obvious to you and in the process you could just damage your relationship with her anyway because she won't want to hear it so we we can be there for her and try to get her to see it and hopefully she'll talk to someone but it seems like for some reason she doesn't want to see it or she's avoiding that that pain or that feeling now you said she's well known sometimes people who have some you know reputation or something they might think that you know, same rules don't apply to them. So maybe she thinks other people don't know that they should be able to do, you know, have extra relationships or I'm not like other people, so I should be able to have this. So that could be playing a part too if she feels like she has some reputation or something. But overall, for you to try to analyze it, Irvine, for me, we won't get to the bottom of it. I would suggest her seeing someone, but also for you to just connect with her rather than trying to convince her. No, I'm not trying to convince her. Yeah. But I wanted to see what uh, what besides that I already uh, you know asked her to see a counselor or but then uh, I want to see what else uh, me what else can I do so you know to just be yeah. me tolerating her or her her boyfriend tolerating her or you know well I mean if it becomes so upsetting for you that's also your choice to make if you don't want to be your around her as much if she's talking about these things or doing these things or you know that's that's your choice to make that if the friendship is hurting you or you don't like it that's your choice you don't have to stay there to try to fix her that that's up to you uh-huh. and, and then you you strongly suggest that we uh, try to make appointments for her to see it counseling and you think it's better that she see a, a counseling one-to-one or just a, a couple well either i mean just getting her there but uh, you know you said something make an appointment for her she has to want to go and make the appointment and a lot of therapists won't let you make an appointment for someone else anyway so she would have to make the appointment herself so i wouldn't force her she has to want to go and again this is about we don't have to try to convince her or push her she's going to have to recognize if something is 
off or wrong and that she wants help. And until then, you can't do too much. You know, there's not so much you can do. So yeah. that's all you can yeah. do. Hope she gets help and, and that's it. And, you know, it could be tough to see our friends going through whatever addiction or things that is going on in their life. And especially when they don't recognize the problem, we can feel a pressure to get them to see it. But when someone doesn't want to see something, they won't. And there's only so much we can do. My experience is if you connect to the pain, get her to see what she already sees, that'll help rather than trying to force her to see something else. Is she willing to call and talk to you on the phone? Is okay for Yeah, of course. I mean, anyone could call. That's fine. Yeah. No, yeah, yeah. She's no, she's just. I just. I just suggested to her that also, you know, she can call you. Uh, she has difficult arrangement for the time between twelve to two. That okay. you always open yeah. the, your telephone. Well, your the line. phones are open but, on on Monday night, two eight to nine p.m. when I do my show. So she could call then as well. Monday but that's, night, eight to nine is open too. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Then I can maybe I can do that and. Make ask her to call you on sure. eight to nine on Monday. Sounds good. I appreciate that. Very, Thank you. Nice very talking to you. Have a great Thank day. Bye bye. All right, let's go to another commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's go to another caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hello. Yes. Hi. Thanks for calling. Good, thank you. Uh, I want to thank you for your show. Thank my pleasure. Thank it's, you. It's very informative, and I have enjoyed it. Thank you very um, much. It really makes my day to listen to you. Oh, um, thank you for your kind words. I really do appreciate that. How can I help you? What's your question? So, with that being said, as I'm getting older, I believe less and less in validity of the religion. Hmm. I was born and raised in a religious family. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm 55, and I'm going to look at the world and all the problems in the world. I think it all stems from religion. And I'm not sure if this is a feeling that the people of my age get to have or uh, um, I'm by myself in this, in this realm. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, it's, you know, you're doubting religion, but then in a way it's interesting because you're doubting your own feelings about it as is it something you're supposed to feel now or other people are feeling it. But just like someone can have a religious belief or a feeling, you're you're having this feeling right now, which is you're doubting the religion. And now the other part of religion being the cause of all the problems, um, people do say that a lot. I think it's it's something that's up for debate, but it's, you know, it's not so clear that it's just about that, but it seems like there is a negative feeling you're having about religion. And sometimes people who from a young age live in a religious family and get this pressure to be, or to be religious and get told right and wrong, good, bad, us, them, and all these things. And then they get older and they start to think for themselves, there can be a reaction that they have to what they experienced that could also affect the way they look at religion or their own upbringing as well. So you might be going through some of that also is that you're thinking more for yourself. And this is why whatever it is, 
I feel like parents shouldn't put a pressure on their kids to think in a certain way, to act in a certain way, or to believe something. Because belief is something that is internal anyway. You can't fake it, even though a lot of times people do fake it because of uh, public perception or how people look at them. I think it's funny that sometimes people say they believe in God, but you can see that even the way they express their religion, they're more concerned about how people see them rather than you know, if they believe God sees everything anyway, what God is seeing. But um, nonetheless, you know, when we try to force people to believe something, it doesn't really make sense because belief has to be something that you feel. It has to be internal. But anyway, you might have your own experiences to what you went through as a child. Yeah, it, it, is, it is true. I did go and, uh, on a yeah, weekly and monthly basis, attended to uh, religious meetings, and uh, I was brought up very religious, uh, but I'm just looking at the injustices in the world and past religions that have always promised that they will fix it, they will fix it one after the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm not saying you make it right for me, I'm just right. talking uh, to see <laughs> Uh, what's your point of view? Um, I'm not even asking you to say if you're religious or not. Yeah. Because I don't think it's, it's fair for you for me to ask you that. But um, it's just um, I'm really having a hard time. But um, what's happening, especially nowadays, with the people around the world, and uh, specifically I'm in U.S. in U.S. Uh, and the role of religion, and specifically. How, how should I go forward living my life? Hmm. If I don't believe in sort of uh, fundamental uh, principle, which, which is all based on religion, religiously based, like that, if I don't believe in that, how would I go about finding the right path? Yeah, and I, well, you know, sometimes people will, will say that as an argument for religion, that if we don't have religion, then what will we be or who will we be? And I don't think we need to have necessarily a set religion that's like an, one of the established religions in order to be a good person. Uh, I don't think it's necessary to have that. Now, I think sometimes people like the idea of being told what's the good way to live and what are the rules, and if they follow them, they're a good person, and if they don't, uh, they're a bad person, but it makes it a lot easier. So I think a lot of times people do use religion because it's an easier way to, to try to live right or wrong, rather than thinking about it for themselves. And so I also think that not everyone follows religion, but people follow things in religious ways, or that same way, which is blindly following them. And to me, that's always a negative thing to just whatever it is. So sometimes people make gods out of people. So so so-and-so was this philosopher that everything he or she said was true. So everything they said, I'm just going to take it in and swallow it whole. And they think, well, I'm not religious. I'm just following this other wise man. But that's not so different than just blindly following a religion. So I think we have to also realize, and maybe in some ways that's embedded in your question of, well, then I don't know how to live if I don't live, or how are we supposed to know how to live if we don't live a religious life? And that's one of, I think, the challenges of life is we have to find that ourselves. Of course, we can turn to wise people and read and and converse to, to figure that out. 
but there isn't to me some rule book that everyone can just follow easily and know it's the truth. We look for them because I think it, it takes away that anxiety, but I don't think really one exists. And so you might be in some of this, in, in a way, existential crisis of trying to figure it out for yourself. And it comes with some anxiety of how do I know it's right? How do I know what's wrong? Which is exactly why I think people turn to someone else to tell them what's right or wrong to take away that anxiety. Mm-hmm. Sorry, by the way, were you uh, were you uh, speaking? Or, uh, no, I was. Yeah, I I taken a break there. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> As I'm listening to you talk, I think I'm getting to to really why I called you. It's you know I do believe people are like onions. Sometimes when you take that layer off. It may stink. Sometimes it may smell good, but we don't know until that layer has been peeled. Um, and I'm getting to my point is looking at the Christian diocese, um, what what happened with uh, uh, the the rape victims of uh, all that that fiasco, uh, connecting that to my life. I had a uh, brother-in-law who ended up being a pedophile and who lived in my house and mm. with me. So I'm like, what the heck? Who can you believe anymore? Mm. Your own brother-in-law. I mean, uh, people on top of the, uh, the Christian uh, diocese and uh, the ones that, you, you know, they say if you, if you got caught stealing... Uh, it's not your first time, <laughs> hmm. and and people are sorry that you know they stole, but they're not really sorry. Sorry, they're sorry because they got caught. Mm-hmm. So back to uh, my uh, I've lost my faith in religion hmm. and God and just in general all the good things in life. Um, don't mean to be a pessimist, but I am today. Um, yeah. it just does not nothing make sense. Yeah, I mean, you said you don't want, there is a negative, you know, it's almost like this giving up on people, on humanity. Um, one thing I actually wanted to mention before, and you, you talked about it, is I think what can be unfortunate, you talked about religion being the cause of the injustice and harm, and there is, whether it's like the most or the biggest, I don't want to get into that debate, but definitely one thing that does, I think, contribute to a lot of suffering and bad behavior and immoral behavior is when we think because we belong to some group, or because we're some kind of us, whatever that might be, then we can do anything we want. And a lot of times that's what people do. Or in the name of that thing, whatever that thing may be, we can then do other immoral actions. We can turn someone into the means to our ends or whatever it might be because I'm this or that, or especially because I'm a member of the clergy, people can't question them. And I think this is a big problem when we don't evaluate everything and evaluate people and evaluate actions just for what they are but we then assume well if a person from this religion is doing it it's okay or from my religion is doing it it's okay or if someone is a clergy we can never question who they are in any way so again it goes back to not questioning and having these absolutes that 
if someone is this kind of person, they're automatically good or bad. I think that is a big problem. And so again, we cling to these beliefs and ideals and ideologies because they simplify things, because the truth of life is much more complicated. But maybe you were accepting that at some level that, okay, I can trust someone because they're my family member, or I can trust someone because of this. And it's not to say we have to mistrust people, but that people are capable of bad actions, that even if we think they're not, and not that we have to be paranoid and necessarily pessimistic about everyone, but there is an understanding that that is possible, that no group is immune to anything, that no people are immune to anything, and we, we have to accept that. And maybe you're at some kind of crossroads of trying to recognize, well, I thought I knew who I can trust, but then if I can't trust them, can you trust anyone? That is a crossroad right now. Yeah. And I'm trying hard not to go to the path that I don't trust anyone because you can't go about life no. uh, in, in that uh, manner. And uh, um, I just want uh, to uh, say this one more thing is, a friend of mine years ago said, love all, trust few. So it, it, it has really resonated with me in the, in, the, in the last few months to love all but trust few and have your checks and balances. And, yeah. Um, and I, I well, I, I can get that. I think I like the, the love all part and the trust few. I have a little bit of issue with that. Um, it doesn't mean trust is not something that's like a hundred percent that we trust blindly either. You know, I think sometimes we wish it, it would be nice if that would be the case. If you just could trust people and not ever think they could hurt you or have to worry about it or know which even that few is, because in that, that statement to me, it sounds like love all trust few. And then those people you trust, it's like a black and white thing that they're never going to hurt you, but there isn't that. And so you know, going back to this idea of like religious people, good people, bad people, it's also this recognition that we all have the potential for good and bad, even you and I who are talking to each other right now. And so that is part of being human is there is the potential for both and everything. And so to me, the the idea of good and evil, when we talk about it, it's less about something out there and more about something within ourselves that we, we have that potential. And so I hope we love all and then trust everyone initially, meaning like you give them a basic amount. And then we also have to build trust with people. To me, trust is something like with everyone, we're going to give $20 initially. We give them that amount of trust. And then we see what they do with that. Do they give it back to us in a timely way? Do they manipulate or steal or do anything else? Then we don't give them more trust. But if they give us that 20, then we can give them 50, then 100, then this. And still, after all that, it is possible they gain our trust and hurt us later on. But we do have to start with that mindset of, I will start with trust and I will try to build trust and still accept there's no guarantees. There will always be that uh, feeling and that could contribute to some level of anxiety, but we might have to accept that reality that if we want to interact with others, we have to accept that, that possibility. That's true. That is very true. Um, yeah. The, the truth no. is that, the truth is that we don't really we won't really know that's what makes it so hard is it would be nice I think you know hearing you talk and I can feel it that we always we wish there's just a way to know that certain people we would just trust because they're part of this religion or that religion or this 
culture or that culture or this type or that type. And then we realize it's actually a good thing too, because like it's like everyone could be everything, but it, it's it's scarier to not know. And so we prefer to know, oh, they're good people because they're like us and we think we trust them. But like you said, we see so often people have trusted someone because they were a member of clergy or a member of this group or family member and they got burned by them. And so we, we start, to me, it's about having a basic level of trust for everyone. So love all and trust all initially. And then we also let them show how much more trust we can give them. I guess where I am right now in this point, uh, this point in my life, uh, it's going to take a while for me to turn things around. And uh, that would be different for each person. Uh, the time, I do believe time will heal everything. Uh, I, I'm just hoping that will, uh, it will speed up a little bit the need to get my, gain my trust back. And as you said it, with the $20 bill, you know, small baby steps. Yeah, it probably will be baby steps. If you, you know, I'm, we're about at a commercial break. Would you want to get into how you lost your trust? Okay, let's let's talk about that. So I'm going to put you on hold. After the break, we can talk a little more personally. You know, we've been talking kind of in this abstract way. We can get into, you mentioned some things, but more at a deeper level, what happened to you and go further, okay? Okay. Okay, all right. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's go back to the caller we were with before the break. Caller, are you still there? Okay, so you're talking more, as I mentioned, more on an abstract general level about religion and then also about trust. Um, but you mentioned about healing yourself, and it seems like you've had some ruptures and trust in your own life, and we wanted to get into that. So wherever you want to begin with that, uh, let's, let's, let's dive a little deeper. Um, I want to uh, make one point clear. When I say religion... Being the uh, foundation of all the problems in this world, it, let me stand corrected on that. As I was uh, listening to commercials, religions basically there are none of them have preached any wrongdoing against other people. People who run the religion are mm-hmm. so. With that being said. If there was no religion, I'm just imagining a world without the religion. What kind of a world will, will we have, will, will we ever have? Mm-hmm. Um, but back to your question, what is, why, why I lost my uh, trust to people uh, and where I was betrayed. I just one that uh, recently, uh, this, one, this one family member, um, who ended up being a uh, pedophile, uh, raped a couple of kids oh. in our family, and was molesting others at the same time, and I never saw it coming. Mm. Um, that is just recent. And then before that, um, uh, growing up back in Iran, um, being from a different religion, um, I was treated. Um, I was betrayed by my own, my own friends because mm. of my religious beliefs. 
this was early on in life when I was, you know, I don't know, five, six, seven, eight, nine, uh, right before the revolution. Uh, so, yeah. Anything else that I need to add? <laughs> no, I mean, I'm sure there is there is probably more, obviously, but those are two pretty big ones and um, spanning a few decades going back. I could see, and, and that also could be related to some of the feelings about religion, what you saw there and being betrayed by your friends. Of course, that that's, that's the hardest. If we get betrayed by people we already think or we see bad in other people, that can be a little bit easier. But even your, I think you said it was brother-in-law or something, family member who was living with you, those can be really tough because, you know, he was in the home with you or you're spending time with him. Like you said, you never suspected it. And then to see something so bad was going on, it, it could be very hard to, to reconcile, to be like, wow, he was doing that and he was right here and I trusted him. And then it makes us think, well, then how can I trust anyone I trusted? Because I obviously have a bad radar or I don't see things when they're right in front of my eyes. And so that can be very tough to recognize and then makes you not want to get burned again. So you don't want to trust again because you don't want to have that same experience. So that recent one, I'm sure, I don't know how long ago it was. How long ago was that that you found all this out? Uh, May of this year. Okay. Uh, let, me, yeah. let me add one thing. There were some signs and clues and both wife, my, my wife and I, we both kind of chucked it to being a creepy uncle or attracted to saying that, oh, that's just, that's just the way he is. He wants to be friends with the kids. Mm. But <laughs> now looking back and say, oh, you know what? Yeah. <laughs> You're right. No, thank you for not. <laughs> I'm glad you didn't, but I could, I'm sure a lot of words came out of your mouth and in your head when you found that out. And there's a, a few things. One is we do have a, a hindsight bias. Sometimes when we look back, we say it was so obvious um, and even even though maybe it's not, but we also know that we tend to want to assume everything is okay. And yeah. we feel even or we can feel guilty. Oh, my gosh, if I even assume he has these intentions or does these things, we can feel guilty about that. Uh, it's tough. It puts us in a hard position, but it's realizing as hard as it can be to sometimes acknowledge this. We know that most people that get abused sexually, they know the perpetrator, unfortunately. It can be strangers, of course, but more of the cases are with people that they know. And so even though we would never think of this person being that person who can do that, it could be that person because they usually don't always look like it. Now, maybe he even had some signs, but very often people are very surprised when something like this happens when it comes to, you know, a pedophile or someone being sexually abusing a child. Very often people are so surprised because it's not someone that they would have expected. And so for me, this is why we have some rules in place. We say, you know, we won't leave our child with a male or female family member alone, no matter who it is. And it's not that you're suspecting each person is definitely a pedophile, but it's just a general rule you're setting up to protect yourself overall, because you know, it is out there. We can't deny that these things are happening. And so we have to accept it and, and we can make some um, precautions or make some guidelines to help us protect our kids or kids from that. But so there could have been some denial you guys were having there. And you look back, you might be beating yourself up for why didn't I notice the signs? Is there some of that? Oh, definitely. Yeah. 
So, you know, that's, and that's going to be part of the process of, of, of trusting again is trusting yourself and also forgiving yourself because you don't want to get it wrong again. And the easiest way to not get it wrong again is to never trust anyone else again, because then you can never be wrong about trusting someone. But then of course you'll have to push everyone away. And it is still pretty soon, five months. I'm sure this was shocking beyond belief for you guys to, to learn about this and how horrible of a thing that was going on. Um, with someone you knew and were, I think you said, am, am I right about that? You mentioned you were living with, he was living in your home before? Oh, uh, he never lived. Okay. He wore uh, very tight. Okay. He um, pretty much did everything together and yeah. went on trips and uh, beach and camping, uh, mountain trips. I mean, it was like my brother. Yeah. Sorry. That's tough. Yeah. That's hard, you know, to, to have to deal with that. And so... Um, I think that's going to be something you'll, it'll take some time because like you said, he was so close and it seems like you trusted him and, uh, maybe it seems like he was a little bit different, but you just thought, Hey, he's different. And I do want to make that point very clear. Not everyone who's different is doing some kind of bad behaviors. People are just different in lots of ways. So maybe you just thought, okay, he's a little bit different, but that's just him. Um, maybe there was more clear signs. When you say there were some signs, other than just him being a little bit off or different, what were some of the signs that you saw that hindsight makes you think, wow, how did I miss that? Uh, one of the signs were that uh, he, he would ask my um, daughter to come and babysit, but he would never leave the house. Mm. Or he, 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 he would how old was your How old's back. your daughter? Yeah, she's 18 now, but oh. uh, this is going on for like past almost 10 years mm. so or you know go to the pool you know get you know bump against her or um, uh, even my wife you know, she would say that you know he's just holding on a little bit too long with the hug mm. uh, you know signs like that yeah or you know you're a guy you can relate to this you're, you're sitting in the bar you're sitting in a, in a um, in a gathering, and then you see a girl walk by, and the guy next to you, where's his eye line? You know, he's checking off his, you know, his curves, for mm-hmm. lack of a better term. <laughs> You're like, you can tell that this guy is either undressing her or this guy is just checking her out. And he had those wandering eyes. Uh, and everyone has uh, mentioned that, and, you know, it's, squeeze a little longer, uh, look a little funny. And mm. I think he's just, he was all around. Uh, he was not only a pedophile, he was just, just a pervert. Well, he might have had a, Looking yeah, back. some, uh, obviously that itself is some uh, bad relationship with sex, but there might have been other other things as well from what you're saying. But there are some things, the babysitting and, and that stuff, you know, and this is why, again, it's not that we want to, also make our kids paranoid to think you know everyone out there is a child molester but we do talk to them in a way i always encourage parents from a young age to talk to your kids about things like your body and this is your space and no one is allowed to touch you in a way you don't like and there's certain parts of your body this is as for a younger child that you know other people don't see other than mommy or daddy if we're changing you or something you know having these conversations and making them aware and especially i'm not saying this happened in your case but You'll hear stories where a kid will tell their parent, oh, I didn't like the way, 
you know, grandpa or my uncle hugged me or something. And then the parents just say, oh, come on, he's your uncle and he loves you. And you're don't make it, you know, don't be silly or whatever they say to them. But we'll very often dismiss what they tell us. But it's very important to tell our kids that no matter who it is, if you don't like the way they're touching you, even if it's mom or dad, you're allowed to tell us. And so I love kids, and I know sometimes you just want to give them a hug and kiss them, but it's realizing that we want to show them that it's their body and their space, and touching them is something that they have say over so that they can hopefully voice it if they're ever ever in a situation, unfortunately, where something is going on. But yeah, it's just that reminder of it's not that we try to be paranoid of everyone, but we're aware of the risks that are out there, and so we're mindful of the situations we put people in. But for yourself, when it comes back to trust, it could take some time. So be patient with yourself. And I, I hope you won't completely lose hope in people that it means all people are doing really horrible things right in front of your eyes or behind your back, but it's people that you know. And don't lose that complete hope, but that can take a little bit of time and don't try to rush it or force it or come to some conclusion right now about who you can trust and who you can't trust and any kind of blanket type of statements or judgments, but your, your, your trust right now, it's like it's injured. It's going to take some time to heal a little bit. So we shouldn't expect for it to be as strong. Just like if you fall and break your leg, your leg's broken. It's not as strong. It doesn't mean it'll always be that way. We have to give it a little bit of time to heal. And I'll mention another thing about, you, you said this, I think in the last segment about time healing and absolutely time does heal, but it also depends on what we do with the time. Cause with the time, because the same thing with that broken leg, you can break a leg, but if you walk on it every day, it's not going to heal. So there's sometimes things we can do to help or interfere with the healing process or make it worse. You know, you could take yourself down a rabbit hole where you even trust even less. And that's what I wouldn't want to see you do. So being a little bit patient, exploring that what you're going through um, and realizing that it could get better, that I don't have to always feel this way. I probably won't. It's just like if you get in a car accident, the next time you get in the car and for a while you'll be scared and a little anxious, but it, that can go away. So I, I'm hopeful that that'll happen for you. And I'm also hopeful that you'll be patient with yourself in that process. Um, so one of the things, when you say be patient, and also when you say time heals, but you know don't get up and walk on your injured leg, what are the things? that I can do or exercise to to make this recovery less painful? Do you have any sure. opioids that you, know, that you don't need? You can send it to me. There's something I'm trying to think. I don't know of a book or anything that comes to mind. or But, you know, one is being patient means like listening to yourself. And, you know, if you're, let's say, meeting someone new and you realize you're not trusting them, pay attention to that. Now, it doesn't mean you have to act based on it either way, but also don't try to force yourself, you know, okay, so we talked about trust and I have to give people some trust. So force yourself to, to just start trusting people, even if you don't feel good about it, giving yourself a little bit of time to see how it's processing. I mean, of course, things like going to therapy can help with a lot of things and trust is a big one. And and even the relationship with the therapist in itself could hopefully help that too. Um, But But, you know, it's like not trying to force something that now, because I talked about it even today, I have to start trusting more or I have to do this or I have to do that. Taking your time and then realizing eventually you're probably going to have to take some risks. So it doesn't mean completely ignoring the signals, but sometimes 
It might be a little bit scary to trust in certain ways, but you'll have to take some risks eventually because trusting always does involve some risk. There's no 100%. And so you'll have to do some of that. Now I'm looking at the time. I we, I do have to wrap up the show. So I don't have a specific book or thing I can say do this, but it's as always being patient and listening to yourself, talking to those around you. If you want to seek therapy, I think that I'm always in favor of people going to therapy, but just recognizing it'll be a process and you don't have to figure it out today. Um, do you do therapy over the phone? I know you're in California. No, yeah, I, I don't do it over the phone. Unfortunately, wherever you are, I'm, I'm, I do have to wrap up. I'm sure you'll be able to find someone that will be helpful just to get you through some of this. Um, I do have to get off the air, but I hope maybe you can call back and we can talk some more. Can you do a show about the trusting and taking care of the kids? Okay, because I'll keep that in mind. I'll, I'll make a note of that. Yeah, I would really do have to get off the air, so I'm going to wrap up there, but I'll keep that in mind. And I've brought it up before, but I'll, I'll mention it again soon. Awesome. All Thank right. you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, we've reached the end of the show. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Rilakwi. Have a wonderful day. Thank you.